stand before you as thankful to be here with you to proclaim Christ and his excellencies. Um, We preach and we come and listen to preaching because we are convinced that God speaks to us through his word and especially through the preaching of his word. So I'm glad that you have taken time out to hear the word of God proclaimed. And I'm, I'm thankful, especially as I look out and see uh, many of your f- uh, faces are familiar to me from when I was here from 2006 to 2010 and how God used uh, many of you in this place to, to work in my heart. And I have friendships that I know will last uh, a lifetime. And so I stand here uh, thankful for those things uh, to proclaim Christ before you. As, um, so my name is Jim Upchurch, if you didn't catch that earlier, and I'm pastor at Christ Church in Rollsville. As uh, Justin was about halfway through his sermon, the thought crossed my mind, who scheduled me to preach after Justin? <laughs> Come on, who did that? And then he said the word ontological, and I was like, I got this, I can do that. So we are in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want to preach from Deuteronomy 6, especially verses 4 through 5. And I'll read the text in just a moment, and I'll read through verse 12. By the way, Justin, thank you for proclaiming the word of Christ and lifting him high. I was greatly encouraged. According to the bumper sticker, it is simple. Love God and love others. Four little words, right? Love God, love others. It almost makes it sound like the easy button. Do you remember that? You just click it and it's done. Love God, love others. I've got this. Now, to be fair, the people who have these bumper stickers probably understand the background that it's not this simple. So to be fair, if you have that on your car... I'm not criticizing you. You probably know this. But I can't help but think there is a significant amount of people who don't get this. Yeah, that's simple. They read the words. Yeah, that's simple. I can get on with that. Love God and love others. It's something that I can do. But it's when you begin to actually delve into those four little words that you find just how difficult it is. To love God and love others. For if you dissect those four little words, you would find that they are filled with all of God's commands to his people. All the law and the prophets are summed up in this. Love God and love others. You begin to realize that love God, love others isn't simply difficult. It is impossible. But there it is. These commands to love God and to love others as ourselves. So in a sense, you could say that it is simple. It is simple to understand, but it is difficult, impossible to actually fulfill. I want to tell you our main idea for my sermon, and then we'll read the passage. Our main idea is this. Because God is the only true And the only true God and the only being truly worthy of our ultimate love, you must make it your aim to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Because he is the only true God. And he is the only one truly worthy of your ultimate love. You must make this your aim. 
Look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 12. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing into the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. Hear Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with Large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you do not, did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God is the only true God and the only being truly worthy of ultimate love. Therefore, you must make this your aim, to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. As we come to the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are finally on the cusp of the land that had been promised to Abraham. All of their hopes, all of their dreams are about to come true. At least, that's what they thought. God's promises would finally be fulfilled. But before they cross over, God has some commands for his people. They need to know how they need to live in this land that God is giving them. Deuteronomy, then, is a long pause in the narrative of the people of Israel before they cross into this promised land. And the book is a a recommitment of sorts. It has the form of a covenant renewal. So roughly, in chapters 1 through 4, you have the backstory and the historical account, the context. In chapters 4 to 26, you have the covenant stipulations. Here is what you must do, in other words. And from our passage, he's just got done, uh, just finished repeating the Ten Commandments. And then in chapters 27 to 30, all of the covenant blessings and curses are listed. Here's what will happen if you obey, you will be blessed, and if you disobey, you will be cursed. And then finally, in chapters 31 to 34, Moses fades away from leadership, and Joshua is raised up, who will take them into the promised land. So here in chapter 6, Moses is outlining what God's people owe to him, what is required of them to follow him as their Lord. And here in this one small verse, verse 5, In these 19 words, we have in seed form all that the book of Deuteronomy is about and all that is required of God's people. They were to keep God's commands and diligently teach them to their children and their children's children, and it would be an expression of their love for God. So one commentator says that the entire book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on this one verse. 
So what do we read here in this verse? And particularly, I have in mind to draw truths from what is commonly called the Shema, verse 4, and, uh, which is Hero Israel, and then the response which is called for in verse 5, Love God. Now I'll be drawing three truths from these verses and their outflow really into the rest of the Bible. So if you want some pegs to hang your thoughts on, I want you to consider three superlatives. Now, a superlative, of course, is a part of speech we use to describe a quality to the highest degree. So there's the regular, the comparative, and then the superlative. Great, greater, what? Greatest. Old, older, oldest. That's the superlative. That was, we say this without even thinking about it sometimes. That was the greatest basketball shot ever. Well, maybe it was. That pizza was the best I've ever had. The greatest pizza. We speak in superlatives, but we don't often mean it. Tonight, I mean it. Three superlatives about loving God. Three superlatives about loving God. First, consider the greatest task. The greatest task. The greatest task any human being can have is to love God. Deuteronomy 6.5, the greatest commandment God has given to us is to love him. Jesus himself affirms this in Matthew 22.37-40, saying, This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The greatest task you or I or any other human in all the earth could have is to love God. Now to help us think about this, Let's consider three questions from this passage. What is love first? To whom is your love due? And what is the quality of that love which is due to God? So first, what is love? I think we often take it for granted that we know what love is. After all, we just celebrated Valentine's Day. Everybody, we know what love is, right? We don't need to think about this. Well, maybe, at least in part. But perhaps we've begun to adopt some mindsets of the culture around us concerning what love is. So let me ask you children and teenagers, and really this applies to all of us. You can think about this as well. But what do you think it means, children and teenagers, to love your parents? To love your parents. If you're like me, when you think about love, sometimes you're drawn to this idea and think about your parents in light of how you're feeling about them lately. Right? Have they grounded you lately? Have they done something to make you really angry? And, and if they have, then maybe you feel inwardly like you, you still love them, sure. But your love may be lessened a little bit just because the feeling is not as strong as when everything is right with the world. You have tender affections for them. You want to be with them. They make you feel loved and safe, right? But what if I added other things to your devotion to them, your honor, your respect? What if I added to that your obedience to them? Now, we in our culture tend to think of love as feeling, which that is an aspect of love, true affections for one another and for God. But the Bible often talks about love in the context of obedience. So in John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. Right? 
And a few verses later, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So for Jesus, at least, one's love for him is vitally connected to what we do, to our obedience. So I'm not saying there's not any feeling to our love. There, there's great feeling, as we'll see from the rest of this text. We love with our entire being, not simply with our wills or our intellects, but with all that we have. And we are deeply feeling creatures. God has made us this way. He has made us in His image. A part of who we are is to be feeling creatures that have great affections. So, the Scripture tells us we are to love Him with all that we are. But if we are faithful to the text, we must also ask not only what is love, but who are we to love? To whom is our love due? And this is where verse 4 comes in. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's clear that Moses has something particular in mind. Namely, he wants to warn God's people from idolatry. He says as much in verse 14. Do not follow after other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. And it's explicit, of course, in the first commandment of them all. You shall have no other gods before me. So it is the Lord our God we are to love and worship. This is the God who made a covenant with his people, who spoke them out, who spoke to them out of the fire on the mountain. Yahweh, I am who I am, the God who brought his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the God to whom all love and adoration and obedience is due. Now this phrase, the Lord is one, speaks to both God's uniqueness and to his unity. You see, ultimately, Moses is not saying, and God is not saying, that there are other gods similar to him, but he's the main God. He's the strongest God. He's the greatest God. He is the Lord. He is the Lord alone. The Lord is one, and Yahweh is that God. There is no other person, there is no other possession, no other prize that is worthy of your ultimate and love and devotion besides this one true God. And you say, so I can't love my spouse? I can't love my kids or my brother or my sister, my family, my church? And the answer is, of course, you can and should. But it's a different kind of love, a qualitatively different love. So Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then in another place, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now the point here, and what Jesus is getting at, is that there is such a qualitative difference between one's love and devotion to God and one's devotion to other people and other things. So much so, there is no comparison. So I think my favorite song, I've come to this conclusion tonight after singing it, is Behold Our God. It magnifies the glory and majesty of God. In Christ and his work. And when we get to verse 2, who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? 
Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? I'm a pretty reserved guy usually. I wanted to shout when we sang that. Nobody, nobody can compare it. Nobody can do any of those things because he alone is the Lord God Almighty. And he alone is worthy of your love. No comparison. No comparison to any other person, any other thing. He is worthy of your devotion. And this leads us to the third question about love. What is the quality of love that is due to this God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus essentially repeats this and says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, what do you notice about these verses? Won't you notice the constant refrain? With all of your. With all of yourself. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your mind. With all your strength. Now, of course, we see different aspects of our beings in these words. To love God with all your heart, we might think, means to love God with our emotions. But what is more likely the focus here is to love God with your mind and your will. For the people reading this, that would be the seat of their their mind and their will. To love your God with your mind means a couple of things. It does mean your intellect. Absolutely. In our culture, we often don't think much about that. We think little of the pursuit of knowledge. Very few people actually read today, I've found. Much of Christianity in America is swept up into emotionalism and the intellect is often cast by the wayside as something that is unnecessary and even a hindrance to our worship and love for God. But friends, God has given us minds. I mean, just think about the brilliant minds throughout our world and God has given us minds to pursue the knowledge of who He is for His glory. Consider even the rest of this passage in Deuteronomy 6. Impress these commands on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. What is this but a pursuit of the mind for God and His commands? To know Him more. To love Him more. We must be a reading people and a learning people and a people who thirst for wisdom and knowledge. Not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of loving God with all of our minds. To love God with our minds also means to love Him with our wills, with our attitudes and motivations. We are not to grow proud in our intellectual pursuits our intellectual pursuit of God, but rather we are to grow in humility and submission to the Lord. Moses and Jesus sum up this command by saying we are to love God with all of our strength. And that is a a broader category by which they are saying with everything you are, with every ounce of your being, you are to love God. And God is commanding us through His Word that we must love Him with our entire being. Love God with everything you've got. With all that you are and all that He has made you to be, love God. Now with that explanation, let me repeat that first truth. This is the greatest task you could ever undertake. The greatest 
task you could have, any human could have, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that leads us to our second superlative. And maybe you've already begun to think of it. Is this our greatest weakness? The greatest weakness. The greatest weakness you have is that you don't love God enough. If this is God's greatest command to us, if this is the greatest task one could ever set out to accomplish, then it is also one's greatest failure if he cannot do so. We all have many weaknesses. James, the brother of Jesus, says that one great weakness of a man is that he cannot tame his tongue. He says, find me a man who can tame his tongue, and you found a man who can control the rest of his body and his life. Anger is a great weakness of man. Perhaps it's one of your struggles. Again, James says, we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. And yet, friends, how often are you slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to get angry with your brother and sister, with your mother and father, with your children? You may find that you have a great weakness when it comes to lust. Your mind wanders as you look at others. You are not careful about what you watch on TV or are surfing on the internet. And before you know it, you've been sinning for hours on end in your mind. And you think, why am I so weak? Why can I not please God in this area of my life? And you sense how weak you are that you are taken into temptation. Or you might have a great weakness with how you spend your money. So you buy the nicest things even though you don't need them but there's just this craving you just need it so much you you have to have the next and brightest gadget the moment it hits the stores you have to have those new clothes or that new bag you find this weakness in your own heart to envy and desire things that you do not have and it is a great weakness or how many of you feel like you are weak in your spiritual duties Do you find that you are often weak in reading scripture, in listening to sermons? Which one of you feels strong in the area of prayer? You feel you're too busy as it is, and so little by little your prayer life is squeezed out of the picture. And then when you finally devote time to prayer, you find you don't know what to say, you don't know how to pray. You kind of sit there in silence asking God to help you to pray. We all face many weaknesses, and I know because I have faced them too. I'm familiar with them by my own experience. But what you must realize is that your greatest, your most defining weakness, the weakness that is the fount of all of those other weaknesses, is that you don't love God enough. You don't love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Friends, do you feel this weakness? I think it's why we sing with, with such force. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing it with such force, not because we like that it's true, but because we know that it's true. 
The only reason you may not think it's true of you is that you don't know yourself very well. Because with the knowledge of ourselves and of our sin, we must come to this conclusion. Our greatest weakness is that we do not love God enough. And this is what we see in Israel too, of course. They were confident in their own ability to love God and keep His commands. They responded to Moses when he read the commands. Do you know what they responded? He read to them the words of the law and they said, All this we will do. But they didn't and they couldn't. And their sins, and for our sins, we all deserve the wrath and judgment of God to fall upon us. If God's greatest command is to love him and our greatest failure is that we have not loved him as we should, then the greatest judgment of all ought to fall upon us. Suffering, enmity with God for all eternity, and woe to those who have to endure the wrath of God forever. It will mean everything we have loved in this life, including our possessions, including our family and friends, our comforts, our very own lives, will be taken away from us on the last day. And those who are in hell are cups which are filled to the brim with the wrath of God. Now, I don't want to move away from this too quickly because too often I do. I talk about the wrath of God and I talk about hell and eternal punishment. But then I like to move along. Let's, let's move along away from that. Let's not spend too much time on that. Yes, I preach about hell and God's judgment almost, well, in every sermon. But I like to move on from that rather quickly. It's not pleasant. It's painful and uncomfortable. Let's talk about some good stuff. But I'm sure you would agree better an unpleasant few moments in the midst of a sermon than eternity suffering under the wrath of God. So friends, take a moment to consider that this is what you deserve. Now it may take some argumentation on your own part because we do not naturally agree that this is what we deserve. We like to justify ourselves. We like to justify our sin. We somehow justify why we have not loved God with all of our beings. You see, it is so important for us to pause here and think about the great punishment we deserve because if we don't, we won't appreciate the great grace that he gives. The greatest task you have is to love God with all your being. The greatest weakness you have is that you don't love God enough. But listen to to this and take heart, brothers and sisters. Our third superlative, the greatest consolation. The greatest consolation you have is that God has loved you in Christ. The greatest consolation you have is that God has loved you in Christ. If your hope for heaven rests finally on whether or not you love God enough, you are hopeless. But if instead your hope is in God's love for you in Christ Jesus, you are in good hands. You are in the hands of the one who bled and died for you. This, friends, is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Other religions say love God. Other religions say love others. Other religions even say generally that we have basically failed to do so. But then at that point they say, but it's okay. Just try harder. We'll do better next time. 
But it is only Christianity that says those who deserve God's wrath get mercy and grace instead because of Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners. Only Christianity proclaims the grace through Christ. For this is love. Justin read it earlier. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And in fact, we love because he first loved us. God's heart has been filled with love for his people from all eternity. In love, he planned the story of redemption for his people through the work of his son. In love, he chose a people for himself. In love, he sent Christ to fulfill the plan of redemption. In love, he sends his spirit to regenerate and indwell that people for himself that they might walk in his ways. And in love, he is guarding us until the last day, causing us to persevere. And in love, he will once again send his son, our Savior, to rescue us once and for all and bring about his everlasting kingdom where peace and love will reign forever. You know Romans 8. You know the end of Romans 8. Paul says that we who are in Christ are conquerors over trouble or hardship or persecution, over famine or nakedness or danger or sword, but not on account of our own strength and merit. Rather, we are conquerors over these things, he says, through him who loved us. For nothing, nothing you could ever imagine, nothing in all of creation he says, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. For Christ is the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations have been and are being blessed. He is the prophet greater than Moses who not only speaks the commands of God to the people of God, but actually fulfills every last one of them. He is the one who loved God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and with all his strength. And his love for God and his love for others took him to the cross where he paid the penalty for sinners. Do you know the love of God in Christ Jesus? If not, you can come to know it tonight. I wouldn't assume that there are no, none here who haven't trusted in Christ who haven't turned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus. You can come to Him tonight. You can turn away from your sins and turn to Christ who died for sinners. He offers you forgiveness for your sins. He offers you life forever in heaven. But more than all that, He offers you a love that cannot be broken. He offers you Himself. And when you receive his love, then you will really begin to love. For when the Spirit of God, who is love, indwells you, you won't be able to help it. You'll start loving like he loves, because you belong to him. You see, our love for God is not some task we undertake in order to gain God's love. It's a grateful response to the God who has loved us with an unfailing love. 
So this command to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, cannot give you the power to obey the command. It shows our inability. It crushes our hearts. Because we recognize every time we get up and try again, we fail to love God as we know we ought to. But the gospel gives healing. The good news is not that we have loved God with all of our hearts, but that Christ has loved us with an unfailing love. And he empowers us to love him with our whole hearts. It is by dwelling on and resting in God's love for us that we begin to love God with all of our hearts. And even when you find that your love for God is weak, this is the grace of God. Even when you find that your love for God is weak, you can be sure that His love for you in Christ remains strong. To remix a Tim Keller quote, it's not the strength of your love that saves you, but the object of your love. It's not the strength of your love that saves you, but that the object of your love loves you unfailingly in Christ. So rest in that. Amen.